What's up, everybody? It's KJ52. Welcome to the KJ52 podcast, episode number 13, entitled Race, Religion, and Rap Music. I am going to sit down in this podcast via telephone with the homie Tommy Colonin as we discuss exactly what it sounds like. Uh, about halfway through the podcast, the connection got bad, and so all my talk part sounds like uh, sounds like a DJ is cutting up and scratching my uh, vocals. So, in the middle of this podcast, I'm going to come back and uh, explain what I talk about in that part, and then we'll jump back into the uh, discussion. But also, I want to make sure that you guys know that you can become a patron at Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash KJ52. When you do that. You help support the podcast and the costs that go into it and all that good stuff, but you also get a ton of unreleased music along with access to me if you're interested in reviewing your music and things like that. So go ahead and check that out. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash KJ52. I'll throw a snippet of a bonus track at the end of this uh, podcast and you can snag that over there on the Patreon page. So love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. God bless. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is KJ52. Welcome to the KJ52 Podcast. I've got a, a homie from a long time, uh, very, very long time. In fact, I saw him the first time ever. We didn't meet, well, I guess we didn't meet officially that night, but uh, all the way back when I was a senior in high school, uh, you, I think you were a freshman in college? Were you a sophomore? I was a sophomore, year? yes. Okay, that's right. So uh, this is a homie by the name of Tommy Colonin, a.k.a. Urban Disciple. Um, so we go Urban way back. D. I, Urban D, sorry. You, you, told, you, to... you gave it up. You told people what the D stands for. <laughs> well, I just I, I want to give them all your, all your different uh, a.k.a.s just so they could be really <laughs> impressed. But uh, me and this guy go way back. Um, one of my first album release parties was at his church, you know, Back in the day, one of the only few places for Christian hip-hop in Florida, or really pretty much in the whole country, uh, was mm-hmm. at his fledgling church by the name of Crossover. Uh, you've held it down for years with Flavor Fest. Um, anybody that's done anything in Christian hip-hop uh, is very familiar with you and your church and your ministry uh, and your music, and you've pretty much had everybody come through there at some point or another. Would you say that? Yeah, pretty much, man. I, I was just on this trip in Israel, and, you know, different people on the trip were like, you know, do you know so-and-so? Do you know so-and-so? You know, talking about Christian hip-hop artists. I'm like, yeah, they've been at my church. Has so-and-so been there? Yep. How about this person? Yep. Yeah, so pretty much yeah. at some point or another, as uh, we've done 16 Flavor Fest conferences, and then uh, probably about 60 or 70 additional concerts at the church over the years yeah there's been a lot of people that have come through yeah it's like you've actually seen all the different changing of the guards so to speak you've seen guys come through when they were nobody and then get so big they Mm -hmm. never come back (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then and then and then not get popular anymore and then then come back i mean you've seen it yeah we'll we'll catch you on the way back down (laughs) right catch you on catch you as you're falling uh but yeah man so um uh so one thing I thought was really um, the main reason why I was like I thought I'd hit you up is because our first meeting was it, it you know it's the title of what I want to talk about which is race religion and rap music um, mm-hmm. the first night I ever saw you uh, I was a senior in high school and I went to this college uh, for a thing called College Days and that's kind of where they try to recruit you know potential mm-hmm. students to go to the school. 
Um, this was in Lakeland, Florida. The school is called Southeastern. And this would have been 93. And I was actually really had my mindset on going to that college that day. Um, and I'll never forget this because I remember sitting in the audience uh, when they were doing their service that night and just just enjoying the fact of what the service was like and, you know, the Spirit of God just really dealing with me and working in my heart. And uh, I'll never forget because, uh, you know, I was like a closet rapper. I didn't want to come out and tell anybody that I had written my raps. <laughs> I, like, just written my like my first Christian rap. Um, and I never forget sitting there, and I watched this, this choir come up, and they were called the Latin Choir. And mm-hmm. in the middle of the song, I saw this guy, and I'll never forget it, because you had a polka dot tie. I don't know why that stuck out to me, maybe because I was like... <laughs> you always tease like, me about that, man. That was... That was- that was the style back then, man. You remember Kwame? Kwame had exactly. That polka dot tie was enough to make me go, "Oh, okay, I get it. He's one of he's one of me." And and mm-hmm. you busted a little rap and the polka dot tie, and I was like, out of anybody at this place, I was like, at least somebody I think I would connect with, um, just from that little that little thing that happened there. And I'll never forget, um, you know, the spirit of God just really dealing with me at that service and whatever. And when it was out, uh, you know, they kind of just let the kids out, and you could kind of go around anywhere on the campus. And mm-hmm. me and my two of my best friends from high school somehow or another wound up at what was called, well, I don't know if it was called the Commons or was it the Student Center? It was like the cafe, the outdoor The cafe, cafe area, right? Yeah. That's right. That's where we wound up. And I think we were inside, and then my friend came up to me. Now, this friend from high school was the guy who had put me up on Christian hip hop, like right as I got saved. And he was like the first guy to give me, you know, just all kinds of groups like dynamic twins and super C and SFC and all these groups. And me too. So yeah. we were like, the, yeah, we were like the only two kids in the youth group that like were into Christian rap, but he kind of ran inside. He's like, man, you got to come outside and check this out. And I walked outside and it was like the only black and brown people on the whole campus were <laughs> sitting around a table because it was a predominantly white school, I remember, yeah. at least in my head. Yeah. And I just oh, remember yeah, this little group, black and brown kids, college kids, and they were beating on the table, and one guy was, like, pounding on the trash can, and everybody was taking turns rhyming. And I remember just kind of sitting there like, whoa, I've never seen this, like, played out in front of me, because it, mm-hmm. it was all Christian raps. And I mm-hmm. remember the only reason I remember that, because I remember one guy was spitting a verse from another guy. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, that was Dynamic Twins verse, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I remember I had the rap in the back of my head, and I was really like, man, do I, do I, you know, do I, do I, do I dare to jump in there and bust the verse? Because it was kind of like a closed-off thing, but it was enough that you could kind of sit there and watch, and I wasn't really confident enough in myself at that time to, like, jump in the circle and rhyme, and this sounds even funny saying this, but the one thing I did have was a dance routine, because, like, at that era, it was like the era of like choreographed like hip hop dance. Yep, uh, it was. It the was the Hammer era, <laughs> and and me and this other kid had like worked out this routine. And while everybody was banging on the table and rhyming, I, we kind of like walked off to the side and started doing just just doing the routine. Mm-hmm. Not really for anybody. It was just like, oh, okay, well we can do this. Let's just do it over here so no one sees us. I don't even remember to be honest with you, but. I was like, oh, we should go, we should go kick it. Like it was just such a, it was just such a pure moment of just joy for what it was. It was like hip hop for what it was, 
There wasn't yeah, any yeah. pretentiousness. There wasn't any, like, it was just, you know, it was young people just expressing themselves. Mm-hmm. And and I'll never forget what happened next, because up to that point, you know, the church I came from was a pretty multicultural church. You know, we were third Puerto Rican, a third Jamaican, third Caucasian. And that was mm-hmm. the one thing when I got saved that was really important to me was diversity in the church, even as a 15-year-old kid. So I'll never forget, all of a sudden, I see this old white guy, security dude, run up, and I hear the crackle of a of a walkie-talkie. And, and he ran up on us and was like, stop it. Stop that right now. And for some reason, I don't know, were you, I'm assuming you were there that night. I don't know if you remember this happening. You, When I talked mm-hmm. to you years later, you said that this was sort of a common occurrence. <laughs> yes. That they yes, were the old, that the old grumpy, but it wasn't, it's, the old grumpy white southern security guards. <laughs> yeah, so like, but I don't remember, it, what, what I remember was like, he wasn't trying to shut you guys down. He was trying to shut us down. That's kind of how I remembered it. And okay. it was kind of like he was like on this. He was he was on the walkie-talkie, and he was like, "Stop it!" And I'll never forget like somebody shouted out from the audience, and maybe they were watching us or something like that. And they shouted out, "You know, leave those kids alone!" Talking about us. Mm-hmm. They're just praising God. I'll never forget mm-hmm. that because I was thinking like in my head, like, how do I, you know, what do I do now? Like, how do I? what's my next step? Like, do I just keep going and do I want to, do I break the rules, you know? And I think we kind of mm-hmm. sort of did. And then she goes, leave them alone. They're just praising God. And I'll never forget his response. He goes, yeah, the God of Shaka Zulu. <laughs> yep. And I th- when he said the God of Shaka Zulu, I just stopped. And I was like, oh, so you're telling me that you believe that everything we're doing is some African voodoo. Like, it was loaded with so much racism in that Mm -hmm. statement that I just stopped. And I was just like, I can't believe this representative of this Christian college Mm -hmm. is, like, not only shutting down, like, just a simple, silly expression of a bunch of kids, but he's now attributing it to, you know, just flat out, racism you know like just i mean there's no other way around it he could be just like hey you're dancing and dancing is sinful yeah yeah no like he had to go there you know what i'm saying and i remember mm-hmm. thinking in my head like huh this is what i'm going to be up against for the rest of my life mm, anytime wow. i try to do hip-hop in the church yeah so that was my perspective i'm curious if you remember that night or if if you remember that happening or if you remember anything happening similar to that as you were on the college because you were obviously a college student yeah well i mean i don't i don't remember maybe i didn't overhear the security guard saying all that stuff but um i mean there was definitely there was a cultural disconnect there was the racial disconnect there was there was all those things that really a lot of that was new to me being that I was from Philly and I was from a uh, a very multi multicultural environment and having a lot of people around me and of different backgrounds and so when I came to Florida specifically, you know, coming to Lakeland, which is kinda of like a, a traditional southern town, especially even more so, you know, twenty years ago when I was yeah. in college. And right. it was very separate. So you had your uh your your southern black people over here 
your southern white people over here. Um, you had your snowbirds over here. And the, and then there was uh, maybe if anyone that was Hispanic was a very small group was the Mexicans that basically were people that were, you know, working in the in the fields, in orange and stuff like that. And so it was like everybody was kind of yeah. separate. And that was a that was a new world to me. I've heard about the South and that it was kind of, you know, racist, but I thought that was like the South, like, you know, back in the day. I didn't realize that a lot of those things right. were still prevalent. And so that was something I had to learn and get into. And then I worked at Shoney's, which, by the way, you did too. I got you a job there. And um, you did. at Shoney's, we used to have to, <laughs> on our name tag, we had to, where we were from on it. So my name tag said Tommy Philadelphia. So and back then my accent was a lot thicker than it is now because I was, you know, straight out of Philly at the time, like fresh. And so I had this, this thick accent, name tag says Philadelphia. So I definitely didn't really fit in to any of those groups. I'm this kid from the north, and I have this funny accent. And then a lot of times people weren't exactly sure what I was ethnically. Are you Hispanic? Are you not? Are yeah. you what, what are you? You know, so it, it was kind of like I would, I didn't really fit in any particular group. And then on top of that, I rapped. So yeah, so in a lot of ways that you felt out of place, I definitely felt out of place as well. And uh, Southeastern was at that time uh, definitely a predominantly white school, and most of the people were from South. Supposedly, it was very different. There was about 1,200 students. And I can remember because I, I, I literally counted because I knew every single person and was friends with every single person of color. So I think we had about between 70 yeah. and 80 people of color on the campus, and that included Hispanic and African American. And the reason I also knew that is because anybody of color, I cut their hair <laughs> because I was the only one right. black people's hair. And uh, so I was doing fades all the time. I cut white people's hair, too. Um, but I had the lockdown, man, on the market for anybody that's African-American or Hispanic. Like they all had to come to me to get their hair, their haircut, get their fade. So I knew everybody, <laughs> you know, um, uh, basically on both, uh, on whatever race they were. It, it was, it, it was interesting. Well, to, to, so here's the funny thing. So that was the first time I saw just blatant white against black or brown racism. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. The funny thing was, you know, I, I kind of, I was trying to get the Southeastern, but I didn't have the money to go and ended up, you know, just kind of floating for a couple of years. But in that year that I had started floating, I recorded my first demo, shows. Um, and so you flash forward for me about three years forward to 96, and I finally wound up going to Southeastern uh, mm-hmm. for one whole incredible semester. And it was yeah, it was right after I left. And <laughs> right, yeah, right after you had graduated, and we kind of connected. I can't remember exactly how we connected, but I had noticed even within those three years that the campus was different. Like the mm-hmm. minority population was grown. They, mm-hmm. the, the campus by in itself felt like it had changed its attitude towards things of hip hop. Um, yeah, because it did. notably, my my student ministry, because uh, everybody had to do a student ministry if you were at the campus. They said, you can make your rap your student ministry. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. that's freaking awesome. Like three years ago, I was darn near getting arrested. And now you're telling yeah. me you're you're embracing what I do. Now, if you and, didn't know, brother, I fought that battle for you. I paid right. the way. 
<laughs> I know because you did. I started it's, it's, a student ministry for hip hop, and they were very, yep. very uh, against it at first. I had to go meet at the student right. ministry's office, and it was this old guy named Dr. Elliot. It was this old white him. guy. He must have been about 75 years old at least. Sweet guy, awesome guy, loved God, but he had no clue what rap was. And so, right. you know, kind of, I, I typed out this proposal. I brought it to him because I had performed at a few different outreaches and stuff, and it went really well. And I was in the juvenile detention center ministry. Right. That was my ministry. And I had rapped there a couple times and shared my testimony with some of the guys. And every time that we would do it, which we would do it a couple times a semester, that's when the kids were the most locked in. I mean, some of the yep. other weeks, it was just terrible. Like, the kids were just not paying attention at all, and you had different people coming yep. in doing different things that was totally not connecting. So I was trying to convince Dr. Elliot, like, listen, man, this is a viable ministry tool. And he's just like, well, I don't really know what it is. I don't what we call you guys, the rap team? <laughs> so, anyways, after a while, um, it was about six months, he finally, like, you know, invited me to come to some different outreaches, and they saw it, and then, you know, it kind of just officially became the rap team. <laughs> That's what he called it. Right. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, and then yeah, so they got... and you're exactly right, because it's infinitely easier, and they would constantly cite you guys. They would constantly say, oh, well, last year we had the rap team. <laughs> yeah, so rap team. They were like, so, you know, you can go ahead and do this. We just need you to come up with a name. And the funny thing was the whole Sons of Intellect name, which became my first crew, was made up in chapel because they're like, you can't just be the rap team. Because I was rapping with another kid from the yeah. school. Uh, and it was I, we were like, well, we can't just be Jonah and Larry. You know what I mean? Like, that was just not going to work. Yeah. So I made up Sons of Intellect for no particular spiritual deepness. So listen, bro, I don't uh, know if you know this or not, but, but that's where my name came from. Because I came up with the name, but we used to be called Urban Disciples. I don't right. know if you knew that or not. So if you look in a, in a I South remember you saying yearbook, that, yeah. it was Urban Disciples. And then uh, when I graduated, it was down to just me and one other guy the, the last two semesters because all the other guys, they kind of graduated or faded out. They were too busy or they were playing basketball. So uh, anyways, then when I graduated, I hit up the other guy who was, he was really more of a singer than a rapper. It was my friend Torrance yeah. Jackson. And so I was like, hey, dude, you know, I'm working on an album. I just want to take the name. I'm just going to – he's like, yeah, man, you made it up anyway. So then I just changed right. it to Urban Disciple and um, then eventually became Urban D. Well, I remember getting on the campus and, and you know, you know, my, my, my major was pastoral with a minor in urban ministry. And, um, you know, that's kind of where I thought I was going to go. And so – I kind of, you know, in a lot of ways felt like, wow, I, I, this is sort of a fit. Like, you know, I feel mm -hmm. like they're valuing what I do from a from a music standpoint and from a ministry standpoint. And because of the groundwork you laid, that's exactly what we did. We went into the juvenile detention centers. We went into the, the jail cells. You know, we did street outreaches. And mm -hmm. it was really, for me, it was super fulfilling because that's kind of how I cut my teeth. Um, so, and I had also... And you were working at Shoney's. And I was... <laughs> <laughs> Which terrible job. I was working that terrible job that you got me at Shoney's. You're right, working the breakfast bar. And um, But the thing that I noticed... Okay, so let me jump back into the podcast. Uh, unfortunately, you're not going to hear me and Tommy talking here, but really it was mostly me just sharing a story um, about what had happened when I had gone back 
to the uh, to the college a couple years later to attend. Um, and what I basically shared with him is that when I came back about three years later to attend the school, uh, my major was pastoral with a minor in urban ministry. But I felt like the campus itself had just changed. Um, racially, it had grown. Uh, on top of that, there was more acceptance of Christian hip-hop. Uh, what he had kind of done to lay the foundation as a Christian hip-hop artist at the school uh, really had opened up a lot of doors for me by the time I had come there um, to essentially use Christian hip-hop or hip-hop in general as a ministry tool. When you were at that school, you everyone had to have a student ministry. It was required. And rather than me doing something I didn't really feel like I was great at, I was like, look, this is what I do. I rap. Uh, I want to use it in the juvenile detention centers and the jail cells. And they were like, absolutely, that's what Tommy used to do. You can take over from there. So on every aspect, I felt like, man, I'm, I finally feel like this this campus is really, it's what I want it to be. And so as I started attending that summer or that spring, um, I noticed that even racially, all the different groups had grown. There was more black kids, more Hispanic kids, uh, just different people and their different groups. But what kind of shared with Tommy was that in spite of the growth, there still seemed to be a bit of a disconnect amongst the groups. And, and most importantly, my relation to those groups. Um, now, the guy that I rapped with in college, he rapped by himself. He was a uh, hip-hop artist. He was a guy from New Jersey. Uh, he was Haitian. Um, he was Haitian at a time where it wasn't cool to be Haitian. And, you know, coming up in Florida, Haitian as a group was really kind of put down. In fact, I actually, uh, right after attending that school, once I went on staff at this church, um, I had to teach my kids why it was a sin to call somebody a Haitian because they were using it as a slur. These were uh, black kids in the project calling other kids Haitians as a way to put them down. And so there was just sort of this negative stereotypes about Haitians. So for me to hook up with this this guy who was very proud of his of his ethnicity, uh, he's from Jersey. My family's from Jersey. Like we connected on many levels, um, and also you know obviously just doing our music and things like that together. So that's actually for those that don't know where Sons of Intellect came from. The term Sons of Intellect was the group name that me and him used for no particular reason except for we just had to come up with a group name that I made. <laughs> It's just some name I made up in chapel had no significance. I just had to come up with something. And so we found ourselves basically getting plugged into multiple ministries at the campus. Uh, they would use us at the juvenile detention centers. They would use us in outreaches and revivals. They would use us in the jail cells. They would use us on the street. And it was really, like I said, very fulfilling. Well, he had a sister um, who headed up the step team. And so often... Uh, me and him, as a rap unit, would go out with the step team to do outreach and things like that. And so over that course of that time of us traveling and doing stuff, I got to know his sister really well. And I thought she was just a really cool, just a cool chick. And um, the reason why I'm telling this story is because just to give you a background of what led up to what happened. So I had experienced this sort of white going at black racism on that campus um, as it pertained to hip-hop. Well, just happened to be for one particular day, I was walking into the cafeteria by myself, um, and <laughs> uh, his sister 
and and a bunch of the girls actually I think some of them were from the step team some of them were but there was a very kind of racially multicultural mixed group in the step team and they were rating all the guys as they began to walk into the cafeteria so they'd be sitting there at a table right at the entrance and they were writing down numbers based on how they perceived the guys to look and so you know one guy walks in they get a six a seven a five a eight or whatever next guy walks in da 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 I see this as I'm coming in and I'm already smirking because in my head I'm like to me, this is hilarious. I don't care if you give me all zeros. I just think this is kind of like a funny thing because I'm the type to kind of mess with people to some extent. So if someone wants to have you know that degree of level of like snarkiness back to me, um, you know, it's never an offense per se. You know what I mean? So I walk in. I kind of glance over my side. I see her. They lift up the numbers or whatever. I'm not again not really paying attention, and she lifts up an eight, and. And so in my head, I'm like, yo, man, I got an 8 out of 10. You know, that's not bad. That's pretty good. Uh, you know, my ego gets a little inflated. Um, I wasn't trying to holler at nobody. I had my girlfriend uh, who was two hours away, who is now my wife uh, of almost 20 years. But, you know, whatever. It still inflates your ego. Right after I walked by, she looked at me and she goes, and she looked me dead in the eye and she said, you're an 8, but you'd be higher if you were black. And, you know, in, in hindsight, or even at the time, I kind of realized, like, she was really just trying to get a reaction out of me. She was trying to get, you know, me to, like, it was almost like she wanted me to get offended or something like that. She wanted to see how I'd react. And, and to be honest with you, like, coming up, you know, when you're the white boy amongst non-white people, you get tested. I mean, you get tested on many levels, especially at that time in the 90s and on a hip-hop side. Like, I was always getting tested. You know, as soon as they find out you're white and you rap, they want you to rap on the spot. Or they'll call you Vanilla Ice. Or they'll, I mean, they do, uh, they, and I don't just mean black people or brown people. I mean, everybody. It was just something about that era and that environment that if you were white and you rapped, you just get tested. And so, to some extent, you build up a degree of a defense mechanism or you learn that it just comes with the territory. But something about that when that happened, I think it might have just hit me a couple hours later, was that to me it really felt like it was indicative of where I fit. Where it was like, yeah, we accept you up to an 8, but you will never be fully accepted. Uh, you will never be a 10 in the sense of full acceptance. And that was the one thing I could not change. That was the one thing about me that I knew was always going to be remain constant. And I think probably on many levels, it sort of began to kind of subconsciously affect me to where I felt, I just felt inadequate in a lot of ways. And, um, but all that to be said, it was, it was ironic. Here's the irony of it was, is that when that guy said that really racist thing about us doing, you know, the, the God of Shaka Zulu, essentially what he was saying was that you'll never do that on this campus. And here I am, flash forward three years later, when she said that, it was kind of like saying, you'll never be what you think you'll be on this campus. And the funny thing was, is that it, it wasn't like, it didn't strain our, our friendship or our relationship, because the reality was, it's like we were really cool with each other. So much so that when my wife, or I should say now my wife, my girlfriend at the time, she came up to visit me to check out the college, she was the only girl that opened up her dorm to allow my wife to, 
then girlfriend to stay there. And she was really hospitable and she really helped me out when I needed, you know, someone to help me out. So it was never like this this debilitating situation. But I guess maybe I internalized it and I began to just see that there's there's problems on on many levels. And all that to be said. So that's the, that's the story I share right there. It got all garbled on the phone conversation. What I asked Tommy then was, how do you, as a non-person of color pastor, pastor a church where it is predominantly black and brown? And how do you, as a hip-hop artist, deal with these situations of race and religion and rap music? Because the other thing I talked about was how you know, NF outselling Lecrae, some of the people's response to my podcast was basically saying that, well, he's outselling him because white people always sell better and white people always buy white people's music. Or or they were saying that Lecrae is now talking about racial issues and white evangelicals don't want to talk about that. So obviously this is all different things to discuss. And so from here, this will jump back into the podcast. I'm curious of your angle as pastor, how do you navigate this world right now? Because I just spoke at your church. I noticed it was very racially mixed, uh, probably more than I remember it, probably even more minority-driven than it was, or maybe I'm off there, but, you know, what's your take on all that? Yeah, um, well, Crossover Church has always been very diverse, um, and actually, yeah, white people have always been uh, the minority at Crossover. It's been, it's skewed more Hispanic and more African-American uh, but it's a little bit of everything, and you've got a lot of people there that attend that are mixed as well, and a lot of a right. lot of mixed couples, because a lot a lot of churches a mixed couple doesn't feel comfortable. But at our church, you know, as in a lot of areas of society, like that's normal now. You know, it's accepted. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, a right. lot of churches, it's it's not. So I think first of all, a, a lot of it over the years, we've always been diverse and multi ethnic. Uh, from the top down, leadership team and everything. And I think a lot of that just happened organically because that was yeah. that was us. That was our generation. That was how uh, we right. grew up in the areas that we grew up. Most of our staff was from, you know, originally was from up north. Um, even still this day, gotcha. more, than, more than half of them are from, you know, a more diverse, uh, you know, up north urban environment. Uh, but then as time went on, um, we began to uh, theologically grow as well, and I got around some different theologians that were um, big into the multi-ethnic stuff. And of course, I knew that it was, you know, it was biblical, but I got a lot more versed in the theology of why multi-ethnic is God's plan, and it was the plan in the New Testament church. So if you look at a lot of the churches in the New Testament, they were diverse. Uh, specifically, yeah. if you look at Acts chapter 13, uh, the most influential church in the New Testament was the Church of Antioch. The Church of Antioch, if you look at Acts 13, it talks about the church leadership. There was pastors that were, you know, talked about their pastoral leadership team from Africa, from the Middle East, and from Europe, and from the Mediterranean. So you had, you know, this diversity in the leadership, but yet at the same time, then that church was the one that sent out Paul on these missionary journeys and other people, and they went out and reached so many people because they had a heart for other people because so many of them were from different places. And um, now, obviously, 
there was moments in the New Testament where the whole ethnic and race and Jew and Gentile thing and even the socioeconomic classes um, could clash. And there was times that that had to be addressed. So that's right. going to be a, a, just a real thing. It can be something that the enemy can use to separate us. But for us at Crossover, we've um, become super intentional at talking about it, um, biblically backing it up, not just because it's cool and it's trendy and because culture and society is getting more diverse, the church should be more diverse. And uh, unfortunately, there's some churches that are trying to become diverse because it's trendy, but first and foremost, it's biblical, and we're supposed to really love our neighbor. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, a lot of times your neighbor, if you live in a in any kind of metropolitan area, a lot of your neighbors are going to look different than you. Can you still love right. them? Can you still invite them to your church? Can you still go have dinner with them? Can you do life with them? Well, if you're a believer in Christ, the answer should be absolutely. So that's one thing that we regularly preach. Um, and, and in these times that there's been a lot more, you know, last couple of years, it seems like racism has really, you know, discrimination has reared its ugly head up even more. And, and it's always been there. But I think some of the tools we have with the 24-hour news cycle and social media um, feeds that never stop uh, and Facebook Live and all these tools that we have now that can put a spotlight on some of the things a lot more than before and people can chime in with their um, their opinions, um, you know, it, it's become a lot more uh, – we're a lot more aware of it. Um, yeah. But anyway, so that's stuff that the church can't ignore. So we talk about it regularly. Um, there's been many times when an unarmed African-American male would get shot. Uh, we would talk about it. We would pray. You know, we would pray for the situation. We would, um, you know, stand up against injustice. We would, you know, talk about some of the different things that and the tensions that are happening. Um, last summer when there was just a bunch of shootings and stuff going on, we actually, um, in the middle of one of our series, we we paused and we said, we're going to just do something out of the box and we're going to do a panel this weekend and we're going to invite some police officers, um, some city leaders, and just um, some people, you know, to sit up on the platform with us. And nothing had happened in Tampa yet, but we're like, we don't want to be reactive. We want to be proactive. And we want to have a conversation because a lot of people are – nervous and there's tension right now between the police and you know the urban community and there's just a lot of questions and people are taking sides and people are frustrated and so uh, we had some key leaders come in from the community and some police officers and some police from our church even and it was powerful it was it was a great service and it, and it, it eased a lot of people's minds and we prayed together we had dialogue discussion together um, we recently uh, did a series called fake news and we kind of spun it. Uh, that's been a big topic that people say all the time now. And, um, you know, we spun it and made it more of an apologetic series. There's a lot of fake news about the Bible and about Christianity. And one of the weeks that, you know, the, the title was, uh, the piece of fake news was the Bible endorses slavery and white supremacy. Hmm. You know, and this yeah. was just a few weeks after everything happened with Charlottesville. And, of course, we talked about that the day after it happened, and we prayed and, you know, discussed it. And, um, but I mean, being at my church is made up of, 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 of a lot of people of color. Um, you have a lot of other people coming up to them, you know, even, you know, in their own ethnic groups saying, oh, you go to church? Why do you go to church? The Bible, you know, the Bible endorses slavery. Look at this verse right here. And so right. if, 
if Christians aren't taught apologetics and they're not taught properly with certain things in the Bible, especially maybe even what a flashpoint is right now, like, hey, we need to teach our people, like, like this was the context of what slavery was under Mosaic law. And this is how it was different from colonial slavery and from modern-day sex slavery that we still have happening around the globe today. And to really break that down historically and accurately and um, like so many people were just so excited to get that information and they were just felt so much like, man, I had questions about that. I didn't know what to say. Or, you know, someone asked me that and, you know, I was really struggling with this. And, you know, then even about the whole white supremacy thing, you know, there's a scripture, you know, in the old Testament with, uh, where Noah cursed one of his sons, Ham. And so that became this false narrative, um, back in the day called the curse of Ham. And Ham was right. supposedly darker than the other sons of Noah. So, you know, then that, they kind of, some people took that as, oh, well, that means all dark-skinned people are cursed and they're always going to be the servants of, of light-skinned people. And that's just, so that gave people an excuse for slavery or an excuse right. for Jim Crow laws or discrimination or whatever because, well, they're really lesser because the Bible says that and it just is what it is. And uh, I know I know you I've heard of Dr. Tony Evans, as I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have. Um, but Dr. Tony Evans, great biblical teacher, pastor in um, Dallas, Texas. Actually, when I was just in Israel, uh, one of the guys on the trip is, is one of the, the top guys that helps run his, his ministry called the Urban Alternative, which is radio ministry that he has. Uh, but Dr. Tony, he's, he's 68 years old, African-American, so he's quite a, quite a bit older than we are, grew up in a different era than we did. And when he was a young man, when he was a teenager, there was a white pastor that showed him those verses and said, um, because of this, because you're dark-skinned, you're, you're black, and you're under the curse of him, that they, you know, you're, you're always going to experience racism and discrimination, and you're always, you're always going to struggle. It just is what it is. So he didn't yeah. want to accept that. He said, man, that's not right. So he went home and looked in his study Bible and was studying this passage, and lo and behold, the study Bible he had in the study notes it affirmed what this white pastor told him because there were seminaries and there were study Bibles and there was all this, you know, that backed that false narrative of theology up. You know, it backed it up. This was, you know, 60, 50, 60 plus years ago. Thank God um, that's all been corrected now. Um, if you look at study Bibles and even the study Bible I have, I have an NOT study Bible and an ESV study Bible. They even mention in there that that used to be falsely um, basically interpreted. So, uh, so anyways, you know, we, you got to talk about stuff like that and equip people. Um, and that's something that we regularly dialogue and talk about at our church. And, uh, just again, I guess the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, from, from the top down, you know, it's not like we just have, because right, a lot of churches that may not be diverse say we want diversity. Well, let's, if, if they're a white church, they're like, let's put a few people of color on the platform to sing right. or play an instrument or get up and pray or do announcements. Or if it's a black church, because I've had black pastors come to me here in the city and they're like, man, you know, we want to become more, more diverse and we have black people, we have, we have white people and Spanish people visit our church, but they don't stay. And we want to become diverse like you. We, we know the city is diversifying so much more. And so what do we do, you know? And so what I tell everybody is, man, you can't just put a few token people that look different than the majority on the platform. 
Um, they need yeah. to, you need to empower people on your leadership team that can sit around that table and make leadership decisions. Because when something like Charlottesville pops up or, you know, or all the political stuff with Trump or, you know, all these different like flashpoints that are happening, uh, if everyone around your leadership team that sits at that table looks the same and is, thinks the same, is from the same background, well, the narrative that you say and the things you, you know, the way you communicate, you may come off offensive to some people without yeah. even really realizing it. But if you have a diverse yeah. group of people around your table and you can dialogue and discuss um, and learn from one another, that's why I stress all the time, uh, even recently, I'm like, man, learn from one another because everybody didn't have the same experience as you growing up. So even right. that... You know, even that black girl on the step team that said to you, well, you know, I'd give you eight, but I'd give you a, more if you were black. Well, right. there's some kind of narrative of why she felt like that and why she's saying that. You know, there's some kind yeah. of reason. I'm sure, of course, some of that's preference and stuff like that. You know, she might only want to date a black guy or whatever. Um, but there's still some, there's some references and there's some experiences that made her, you know, feel that way. And and so, right. you know, we can't always just jump down someone else's throat when they have something else to say that we're like, well, you know, like, well, black lives matter. Well, all lives matter, you know, and, and right. that's what a lot of people would just want to jump out and say. And um, at the end of the day, it's the Black Lives Matter movement. They're saying, hey, you know, black lives matter as much as white lives matter or brown lives or right. whatever. Um, we just, we feel like we're not mattering as much with all the, you know, stuff that's happening and the injustice and discrimination. And so we just want to, you know, have equality. And so, you know, because many times we don't listen enough to somebody else's experience to um, right. uh, and, 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 and emphasize with them, you know, so, yeah. Well, yeah, so it's funny going back to that situation because I don't remember getting offended as much as probably more hurt. You know what I mean? And it wasn't even like the hurt issue because it it wasn't even like I'm done with you because, again, she was very nice to me. She was the one person that showed so much hospitality. Like you said, you know, you're only going to be accepted to a certain level because you're white. And you can't change that. Right. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm not a good enough rapper. Well, I can work on that. I can work on my craft and get better. And, you know, or I'm not a good enough basketball player. Man, I'm going to work on my jump shot. Well, I'm white. Right. Well, I'm always going to be right. white. Well, you go get right. a tan. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny you say that because I think subconsciously for me, moving forward, because I never ended up finishing the school there. I, I ended up coming back and going on staff at a uh, at a church that was all my kids in my youth group were all black kids from the housing mm-hmm. projects. And even though the church was started by a white female, you know, the church was in Fort Myers, which at the time was the study was done that it was the most segregated city in the South. And mm-hmm. again, so I find myself in this weird dynamic where, um, again, I'm reaching across cultural lines, socioeconomic lines, whatever. But but for me, it began to create this sort of subconscious thought that if I can pass myself off as anything except for what I am, mm-hmm. I am going to have a better chance of acceptance which meant for me, I started cutting my hair in a fade because the more my hair was in a fade, the closer I looked to Hispanic. If I was Hispanic, mm-hmm. I had a better chance of being accepted. I started growing a goatee because that made me look even more Hispanic. You know, mm-hmm. especially if I just stayed outside and got a tan, you know, I mean, people always were like, it, 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 I just needed just enough 
to throw you off your game a little bit to make you go, well, what are you? And yeah. I yeah. look back on that and go, maybe some of that was a defensive technique, but also I'm like, there probably was a degree of me going, now I feel bad about the way God has made me, so much so that I have to like now overcompensate. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And I found myself sort of, I don't know if playing the role is the right answer, but you know, still dealing. And again, maybe that's just something that just happens in your 20s. But part of this goes back to the fact that you know you pastor a church in Tampa. I grew mm-hmm. up in inner city part of Tampa, which was Ybor City, which was predominantly Cuban and black. But I was my dad put me in a private school because the school systems was so bad in Ybor City. He sacrificed to put me in an all white private Catholic school across mm-hmm. town. Where, again, the irony was my best friend was Cuban, didn't even live in Ybor City. He lived on the nicest part of town. And he was not allowed to come to Ybor City, where his family was from originally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they moved so like, on up. I, yeah, they moved up. They're like, you don't go back to Ybor City unless you're getting a Cuban sandwich, like, other than that. And it's funny, So, yeah. the, but then, you know, my mom gets custody of me, and now I'm living in Palm Harbor, which is super affluent, you know, predominantly white. And I just was in like this, you know, constantly just growing up, just this constant weird head spin of where do I fit in? Where does my, you know, what are my lines? Because the reality was I didn't have any great super friends in the suburbs because I wasn't rich enough to be in the suburbs. And then I didn't Mm -hmm. really have any friends in the hood. So it was just this weird always trying to fit in. And then the funny thing was that, you know, everybody talks about gentrification and and generally what they're saying is the white people coming in with money and pushing out the people of color. Well, the irony is that yeah. where I lived in Ybor City has now been completely gentrified, and there's no way that we could have even afforded to live there now. So yeah. we would have been pushed out, ironically. And yeah. I sat and I thought about all this because now here I am in a pastoral role, still doing my music, and I started to think, you know, as much as you think hip-hop is this great unifier, going back to that whole Lecrae podcast where I'm watching so many white you know, quote unquote, evangelicals saying we don't mess with him anymore because all he talks about is race. And the way he talks mm-hmm. about race makes white people feel uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. it makes me think, how do you navigate this? Because, you know, there is so many different things that go into it. You know what I'm saying? There is so yeah. many different aspects. And so I know I have fans right now that are listening to this podcast right now. They live in an all-white neighborhood. They go to a predominantly all-white church because they're from an all-white community. There's no diversity mm-hmm. because there's no diversity to be had. You can't yeah. have a diverse church when there isn't even enough people to be diverse. You're living in some small mm-hmm. town, whatever. And I think sometimes there's this guilt trip placed on some degree of white people like, well, you've got to – you're still not doing enough. Um, but a lot of them, the best way I can compare it, it's like saying, hey, you got this broken faucet. You need to go fix it. And you're going, I don't even know how to fix a faucet. I've never been equipped to know that the faucet mm-hmm. was broken in the first place, and no one ever gave me the tools to even fix the faucet in the first place. So you're just staring, but then the other person's still mad at you that you haven't fixed the faucet. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, and I've noticed that I've kind of sat between these two worlds for pretty much my whole life, and I just thought, you know, it's it's like both sides are are lobbing these Molotov cocktails at each other. And the only reason I was really conscious of this today is because today my son played in his championship game for football. Mm. And so how was his that? team is – well, he, they won. But here's the funny thing. His team is predominantly white with some, some black kids. The team that he played 
was almost all black kids and like one white kid. So mm-hmm. when you go to the game, you see people almost just picking sides based on race. Mm-hmm. But then I realized as I began to walk through the crowd was that it wasn't really even like that because you've got, I was looking at, you know, some kids, some of the parents from our team sitting with an all black, you know, the one white lady sitting with an all black group and she's rooting for the team that has all the white kids. And then Mm -hmm. some guys from the all black team or whatever from that area. And then I realized like, you can't even pull this into a racial side. It really just comes down to, we just tend to cheer for our own tribe. That's what I realized. Mm -hmm. Whatever that tribe falls into or looks like, at the end of the day, we're just very protective of our own thing. And I thought, maybe that's really what this problem is between Lecrae and his former fans, or maybe that's what some of the problems are between these church issues, or at the end of the day, you know, obviously all of it stems from sin. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we're mostly just allegiance to our own tribe and whatever our tribe might look like. And I thought, how do we, you know, if Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, how do we try to be peacemakers? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's good, man. How do we be peacemakers? Because even in your tribe, you know, there's going to be different, there's, if your tribe is diverse, which most tribes yeah. are <laughs> to some degree, right? Um, people are going to have different experiences growing up. And there's some common unifiers, like going back right. to the Cray thing, there was common unifiers that brought that 116 following together. You know, they right. loved rap music. Um, they loved 116, the message. They loved, you know, the, they, they really got to know uh, the artists to some degree and liked them. Um, so they, those were unifiers. But then there was things that right. were different. Because, you know, I, yeah. I went to several Lecrae concerts where, you know, looking out in the audience, the audience... You know, I went to the Anomaly Tour in Orlando a couple of years ago, three years ago, and there was definitely more white people in the crowd than there was people of color. You know, there was people of mm-hmm. color in the crowd, absolutely. But, you know, I think I think a big part of that, too, was even economically, the tickets are $42. You know, that was general right. admission. And then, you know, the VIP was, I, th- I think it was $116. It was 116 So I was just like, my goodness, I can't believe Christian hip-hop ever came to the day where someone would pay over $100 for a concert ticket. If you would have told me that 10 right. years ago, I would have told you you were tripping. You know, and I know same right. with you. If we, if we would have both talked about that back in the day, like, Christian rap in the future, people are going to pay like 100 bucks to go to a show. We would have been, we would have laughed, right? Right. Um, but they created this movement, and there was people that that loved the movement, loved the message. Um, McCray is a great MC. Um, it was a great show, you know, with the, the way that the lights were and the screens, and it was a theatrical show. And I've heard about, you know, his new tour, um, you know, for his new project. I was just, you know, with Richie Righteous yesterday. He was here at Crossover down from New York City, and he just went to a New York date and was saying it was very the- it was very theatrical with the LED screens and everything just flowed, and, and, and they were really – like, they really did it well. It was one of the dopest shows he saw. So those are things that brought a lot of people together, right? But then obviously, mm-hmm. you know, Lecrae and several of the people that are part of his team are maybe a different race than a lot of the 116 followers. And they have a different, you know, upbringing. And Lecrae talks about, you know, he didn't have a father figure necessarily in his life. Sometimes that was his uncles that were drug dealers. And so a lot of people in the crowd, 
you know, white suburban kids, you know, they got a dad. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And so, you know, so there's yeah. definitely differences. And so then I think when he began to speak up about some of the racial things over the last couple of years, um, you know, he started to get responses back from his fans that he didn't expect. And, I, I'm, you know, I haven't been able to personally talk to him about it, but, um, I, I, you know, so I, I can't speak on, like, exactly some of the stuff that he felt and he went through just from what I can read and some of the interviews I heard. But, um, you know, he got depressed. He got hurt. He got offended. He felt like some people weren't there for him um, through that time. Uh, but then at the same time, some of his posts and some of the things that he was saying in interviews um, became even a little harsher at times. So the people that were already feeling a certain way then felt a certain way even more. Or maybe they weren't feeling that right. way, but, oh, now he said this? Oh, man, forget it. You know? And right. so it seems like there's almost like sides that have been put up in the whole situation. And then, you know, he's made some comments recently that he's pulling away from you know, white evangelical Christianity. And I've had several people talk to me about that and call me and, you know, as me being one of the leaders in, in Christian hip hop and like, where do I weigh in on it? And, and then obviously I saw the article that probably some of you have read, John Piper, you know, responded to that and, and was very, you know, it was a very positive article, very gracious and, and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, man, it's, it's challenging. And, and it's, it's sad to see that that movement, um, has um, it's still there, but it's sad to see that a big part of it is is it's fractured now. You know, like Richie Wright just told me. You know, like Lecrae even said in a recent article. Article. You know, I used to do concerts with three thousand. Now there's three hundred. You know, that's yeah. Lecrae's words himself. But you know, Richie Wright just told me that in New York. You know, last time he was there, he was you know in this. I think the PlayStation Theater or something, there was like thousands of people there. And, you know, the, the tour uh, a few weeks ago, a few days ago, there was there was like 700 there, which is still a lot of people, but it's the, the movement's not as big as it was. And it's obvious yeah. there's been a major drop-off and disconnect with, um, yeah. with a big group of his fans. So yeah. I know that's got to be disheartening and challenging at, at some point in Lecrae's heart, but in, in the other heart, in the other part of his heart, I know I've seen him post stuff to say stuff like, I feel like I'm free, I can say whatever I want now, whereas before maybe he felt like he was trying to be careful. And so it's complicated, man. It's complex. You know, I'm right. praying for Right, do you think him. that's a good thing? Uh, no, not really. I, I mean, I think it's good that he can feel like he can express things. Um, but what I've, what I've learned as a pastor of a diverse church that there's a lot of people in the crowd that think differently and grew up differently and value things differently than me. And so, you know, I've got African-Americans in my church that are in their 70s. They grew up in a totally right. different era than me. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. I pointed someone out. I said, this guy, Earl Christie right here, he's 73 years old. He grew up in a totally, he grew up when there was white and black water fountains. I don't know anything about right. that. He's faced all kinds right. of things that, that I don't know about. So in certain situations, he may respond or react a little differently because of all the stuff he's been through. And at the same time, you know, I shared, you know, I grew up with both a mom and a dad. A lot of people going yeah. to church here did not grow up in a home like that. And so I had some yeah. privilege over you. Statistically, right. I had privilege. You look at all the details. I'm not saying you can't make it and you can't break out and God do amazing things in your life. Absolutely. But I had an advantage being that I had both my mom and my dad in the house, and they were present, and they loved me, 
it was a healthy environment. And then I, so I talked about race and age, talked about family situation growing up, and then I talked about economics. You know, and I said, we all grew up in different economic realities here. You know, I, I said, I grew up in a lower income family. I said, we had some welfare cheese. You know, we, we knew what it was like to struggle. I said, as I became a teenager, we kind of moved up to more like middle class and things got a little better. We went out to eat a little more. I was able to get a few more things I liked. And you know, the house that we moved into was, was bigger. I had my own room and all those things. But not every, but some people had that from the jump. Some people right. right now still don't have their own room and they're struggling and they're going through all kinds right. of stuff. So in a diverse environment, you have to realize everybody has different experiences, man, and you got to lean in and listen and learn and then try to educate each other. And so, you know, I, right. it's possible that in this whole situation with Lecrae and all the stuff that happened, could have there been a different approach to it and a different outcome? Possibly, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's sad to see, you know, a drop of any kind of influence uh, of someone's ministry, per se. But um, I think we can all learn from it. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Well, I could have to say, you know, these conversations never really come to a conclusive yeah, answer because no. they're not way quite. too nuanced and 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 they're yeah. way too nuanced. But it, I think, if anything, it's always good to at least uh, to dive in in some way, shape, or fashion. So, man, I appreciate you. Uh, I know you've been exhausted coming yeah, back man. from Israel, so uh, get some rest. Yeah, and uh, you, appreciate you as always, and thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, love you guys. God bless. Peace out, Tommy. Peace. Later. Peace. 